Today's podcast is the first of two that we are bringing you where we recorded live at Collision. Now, we did book the podcasting booths in the Media Village at the conference, but they weren't out in a separate area. They were on the conference floor, so there is some background noise. You'll hear some of the recordings were done uh, at lunch times and also at times the audio is a tiny bit quiet. We've done what we can to juice it up and clean it up for you, and it is pretty audible. But as with these things when we're on the road, it's not quite perfect. However, stick with the interviews. There is a huge amount of insight in both from Vox Neuro and Honeycomb, and hopefully we can have both on the show in a more quiet studio-like setting sometime soon. Anyway, look, I hope you enjoy these uh, these two interviews. As I said, they're from Collision last week in Toronto and there's two more to come on Tuesday. You know, technology is one piece of the puzzle. How it impacts the humans is another. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Joining me today in person is Akish. How are you? I'm very well. Two podcasts in a week. I know. Uh, You're feeling kind of overworked. Nah, nah, nah. I'm, I'm feeling good. You know what you could do tomorrow? Uh, you could complain to the world on Thread or Threads by Instagram about it. Threads by Instagram? Is that a new thing, is it? Threads by Instagram. Launches tomorrow. Yeah. It's Zuckerberg's version of Twitter. As people are fleeing Twitter left, right and centre. Yeah. Uh, basically, Zuckerberg is trying to take advantage and is, is releasing a new app tomorrow, Threads by Instagram, which is basically Twitter. Is it like, oh, but, but it's not like Twitter Spaces? Or will it have no, no, I don't think so. There? I've only seen a few screenshots, okay, to be honest. Fine. Um, and obviously, it launches today from the podcast's point of view. Right. It's Wednesday for Before us. Right. Uh, yeah, so you could download it. You're going to download it? I am, yeah. But uh, yeah. I use Twitter quite a lot. Right. So, if Threads is the new Twitter that's not yeah. a bastion of festering BS, yeah. then maybe it is worth looking at. <laughs> it's just another social media thing. Just another social yeah. media. Mate, that's a little bit Luddite in the world that we work in. Yeah, I know. I'm happy. Don't you use social all the time? I do. Just Instagram, though. That's all I use. And, no. fa- and Facebook. And LinkedIn. Uh, well, yeah, and LinkedIn, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> Correct. Whilst Akish comes to terms with his use of technology, uh, we'll introduce the first talk to From Collision today. This is Vox Neuro. So I'm talking to James Connolly. Uh, you're the founder and chief business officer at Vox Neuro. How are you enjoying the conference, first of all? So far, so good. Yeah? Uh, yeah, second time around. was here uh, four years ago. Um, we've come a long way as a business over those four years, so it's actually very fun to come back full circle. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're on the growth kind of section of, of, of the conference at the minute. I mean, if people aren't familiar with Web Summit and Collision, you know, companies are divided into alphas, betas, and growth. Growth are kind of obviously scaling. Yep. Four years ago, then I would assume you were kind of... Big A, big yeah, alpha. alpha yeah, alpha, pre-seed, or, or yeah, yeah, that very early stage. Absolutely. Um, you know, where we are today, we're selling in the U.S. market. You know, we have, we have regula- regulation and we have, um, you know, growth. Our team's probably 10x in size over yeah. that four-year four period. Um, it's, it's, it's been fast and of course we all went through a global pandemic and being a pre-revenue healthcare uh, company not focused on COVID during the pandemic wasn't necessarily the easiest, most enjoyable experience, but it made us stronger. Before we dive into what Vox Neuro actually is, yeah. then, 
just as a general question, there's been a lot made of the fact that the pandemic, yes, you say there you, you weren't focused on COVID, but the pandemic has helped jumpstart a lot of medical research in a lot of areas. Has, has that been your experience? I always had this gut feeling and maybe hope throughout the pandemic that the, on the back end of this uh, pandemic, the world would have a little bit more appreciation for medical technology. I always tell people today, I think, you know, pre-pandemic, if you put Vox Neuro up against the next Snapchat in front of, you know, the average venture capitalist, they'd go with Snapchat. I think on the back end of the pandemic, they're looking at the medical technologies. Things are adding a tangible value to our society and, and have the, the ability to be sustainable um, yeah. for a long time. Well, that's really, that's hopeful and positive hey. as a place to start. Hey, absolutely. Hey, we, we, we've been talking for nearly two minutes. We haven't said who Vox Neuro are. Let's, let's dive into that. Sure. What does the business do? Sure. Uh, Vox Neuro, which uh, for any Latin fans out there, translates loosely to voice of the brain. Um, at Vox Neuro, we're trying to give everybody's boin, uh, brain a voice. Right. Um, and we're doing that by way of quantifying core brain function. So we're, we're actually merging two existing technologies today um, in a proprietary fashion and layering that with technology. And so we use today's standard neuropsychological assessments, um, traditionally subjective uh, in nature, and coupling traditional neuropsychological assessments and uh, a traditional EEG. Um, and what we're doing here is really taking out the subjective outcomes of a neuropsych test and replacing them with the quantification of core brain function. Yep. Um, so we're able to quite literally take a normative database and bring someone in without a baseline. I could run a test on you right now and be able to quantify attention and concentration, information processing, and memory today. And I suppose for someone who's listening going, hang on, what? Yes. Um, this is kind of like when someone says, how much pain are you in on a scale of one to 10? And someone goes, six? But they're kind of like, but I don't know how I relate to anyone else and whatever else. But with the brain and seeing an actual readout on a graph, that you can go, well, actually, here it is on a scale next to other people and you're, right. not, you're not just second-guessing yourself. And it's a terrific example. I think pain is probably the most, um, we'll call it mainstream, subjective biomarker that we're all asked to, to quantify for, for healthcare professionals. Yeah. Um, we all, at one point, have to tell our mom or our dad, if we're lucky enough, you know, how much does it hurt? And, and if you're, you know, maybe even gets up to a doctor and, and you're dealing with um, how much pain medication do I need? Pain is still very front of mind. You stub your toe, you're thinking about that. Yep. <laughs> you know, asking someone, how is your information processing? How is your concentration separate from your attention? It's incredibly complex. These are things that our brain does automatically that now it isn't. And I suppose to jump in, yeah. when you're asked if you are struggling to concentrate, etc., your ability to cognitively kind of answer that is, is compromised. Well, that's uh, look, you and I, I think, are both functioning health, healthy right now. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yes. Well, let's assume we are. Um, it's hard enough for you now with a healthy brain to tell me how well is your attention functioning. Now, imagine you're dealing with someone with an acute brain injury or potentially, you know, early onset dementia. You're quite literally, it becomes almost like cynical where you're, you know, there's an issue and now you're asking them to quantify that. It is incredibly challenging and it's why today that standard protocol for cognitive rehab is still trial and error. Um, no one really knows what to do. And we're trying to bring some objective data to help inform tailored treatment today. Out of interest, and this is a this is possibly a really stupid question, but how do you get readings from the brain? Yeah. Um, so we have 
two electrical organs in our body. Yep. One is our heart, the other is our brain. Um, if you think about um, you know, a dramatic scene in a movie where we're trying to resuscitate a human being, you are quite literally shocking them with electricity on their chest yep. to try and get their heart going. If you want to understand the health of the heart, you run an EKG yep. to capture the electrical activity. Lots of sticky bits all over Exactly. You. That's exactly what we're doing for the brain. And that's right. what EEG is. It's measuring the electrical output of the brain. Um, and, and what we're doing is we're actually tasking the brain during a 20-minute assessment to execute very specific neurological tasks that we're able to either identify or not, depending on the health of the brain. So, you know, I'm a 36-year-old male. My, you know, brains are very predictable. You know, my attention and concentration should fire within a very specific realm, and we're using something called event-related potentials, or ERPs. So you take a P300, for example, that is essentially the quantification of a core brain function. Um, and so when you're able to couple these two together uh, and capture it in real time, apply it against a normative database, which we have, all of a sudden you are starting to kind of pull back the onion and measure cognition in a meaningful way. Now, your business, as you said, uh, it's grown significantly rather over the last four years. Um, you're working with some really exciting research institutions. Yeah. But it's a family business. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So, 1999, uh, my father uh, had a pretty remarkable breakthrough um, with this technology. Um, he was the first person in the world to essentially be able to run an assessment on a patient who had previously been diagnosed as brain dead and determine that they were not brain dead, but rather in a locked-in state. Right. Lucky for that patient, um, because of this outcome, um, this research hospital was obliged to put the patient into a slow-to-recover program instead of palliative care. And nine months later, the patient walked out uh, under their own power. Um, went on to live a very fulfilled life, had a family, got married, had children. Um, when you're a young boy, you, you, you have your father up on a pedestal anyway. Um, when you start to see and understand that he's quite literally saved a life in a way that no one else ever has, you start to get very compelled by that. Um, so yeah, no, in 2017, I quit a dream job in New York City. I uh, moved back to uh, actually my father's basement at the age of 30 um, to start Vox Neuro, um, right. which was scary, but it was also you know, the easiest decision I ever made because I think I know that there really is something here and it's just a matter of putting the pieces together. Out of interest, you say there you put your father up on a pedestal. That, that makes perfect sense, given, given what you just said. How easy was it to make this your dream. You you said you quit a dream job. Yeah. We talk a lot in this industry about, you know, needing your North Star, um, how important that sense of mission is. Yes. It's it, it sounds like, yeah, there was, there was an obvious buy-in, but equally you had another life. Yeah. You had another dream. Yeah. That could have been an easy switch. So on the surface, it wasn't easy, um, but at the, at the deepest level, it was incredibly binary. It was very obvious. And so actually the, the simplicity of making the decision was probably the most disturbing part um, because it was so easy to give up something that I had worked for almost 10 years for with my previous career. And I think what it boiled down to is, is something that, you know, I think at one point or another, every human probably, you know, challenges themselves with, which is, are you content selling, you know, more pharmaceutical 
products, more automobiles, more ad space, um, or are you looking to have a tangible and meaningful impact on, on the human experience, um, which is something that I kept getting pulled into. And so I was very interested in taking my energy and my, my, my kind of you know, drive and applying it to something that could actually help people rather than just uh, provide more products or more noise to distract us. I think there's enough people doing that today. Now, there was a press release um, yesterday from the conference uh, talking about the number of uh, female founders here at this conference and it being record numbers. Yeah. Your co-founder yeah. is also your fiance. Yes, yeah, she is. She's on stage later today. Yes, yeah, she is. How heartening is it to be part of an industry where, yeah, there's still some challenges. Obviously, like, you know, we're a long way off gender parity. Yeah. But there are a lot of amazing women being put up on a pedestal and being showcased. Absolutely. Um, and I think even honestly, you, you know, four years ago compared to now, collision-wise, I think you see a lot more of that and it's great. Um, I will say, um, you know, as I said, quit a, dream jo- uh, a cre- quit a dream job in 2017 and moved back to my basement while my then girlfriend was involved in that wild decision-making process. Um, and, you know, her commitment to our science was um, honestly incredibly compelling early on but her ability to pick it up and run with it I mean she she went into IP uh, and technology and, and, and product design um, with no background in it and just willed herself to learn these things and so look I'll be honest with you I've watched um, Kimberly get you know disrespected in, in, in rooms when she shouldn't have been and I watch how she reacts and stays in the pocket and executes and waits for moments like today where she'll be up on stage in front of anyone and yep. everybody yep. And, and no one's going to discredit her at that point so you know the reality is there is a long way to go I also happen to be raised by an incredibly strong uh, uh, mother um, uh, who's an entrepreneur as well and so I think generally um, you know the world's got to kind of continue to figure that one out but it takes women like Kimberly for the world to be able to figure it out last quick question then you're coming here You've put some scientific data in front of me. You're going to be answering a lot of interesting and complex questions. What questions do you have when you come to Collision? What are you kind of going out there going, hang on a minute, that's interesting. What's going on there? Oh, yeah. So big time. I mean, so many things. Firstly, I'm obsessed with innovation now. Um, And so right now we have an objective cognitive health assessment. Um, You know, it's reimbursable in the U.S. It's, It's regulated and approved by the FDA. And we're making money with it. You know, one of the biggest challenges that exists in brain health is that, you know, in many cases, people are still asking us, what do we do with the data? Um, because no one really knows how to treat a brain very specifically. And so we are embarking as a, as a species and as, as an industry down this path of really starting to understand how to treat brain injuries and dementias. I see incredible technologies, whether it be app-based um, or more deeply rooted into medical technology all over this conference floor. Uh, focused on the human experience and improvement uh, of health. Uh, I'm excited to be asking them a bunch of questions about what they're doing over the next few years and, and how we can all kind of come together because, you know, the ultimate winners in, in this space will be collaborators. Um, and that's that's something Voxner I was very interested in doing. James, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thanks for giving up some time. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. And good luck, actually. Good luck to Kimberly. Thank you very much. Right, Keish, I mean, look, when you've been to the doctors, I'm assuming, like most people, you've had that situation of, okay, where's the pain? And on a scale of one to 10, how much or how you know mm. sharp is that pain, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's always hard, isn't it, to answer that question? I'll just go for 10 all the time. 
<laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. Give mate. me the morphine. Yeah, I'm literally just like, oh, there's a reason I'm here because I can't tolerate it anymore. It is 10. Give me some meds and you won't need to see me, hopefully, and I won't need to see you. So thank you very much. <laughs> Off to the pharmacy I go, pay for your meds. And just sit and pray. So, yeah. Are you someone that they look at a little bit suspiciously when you walk into the doctors or A&E? Uh, I, mean, I mean, the thing is, I don't... Is it for his drugs again? Yeah, well, I oh, hopefully not. But uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't normally go to the doctor, so I just hate it. But, you know, I do get that, obviously, people... I mean, I've got parents that regularly go to doctors, have yeah. medical conditions and, you know, that sort of thing. So I do really kind of understand the constraints. Um, yeah. And obviously the the focus on identifying stuff earlier to then help with preventative medicine rather than, you know, kind of treatment medicine. And Vox Neuro, not only is it giving us an ob- objective view of the health of your brain, mm. which, you know, when um, when we're talking about this, James, you know, pointing out things like concussion, brilliant example, very difficult to ask someone how they're feeling when the thing that they're trying to describe might be the thing that's damaged which compromises your ability to talk about it mm. but if this can present can, can sorry if this can prevent or at least lead to potential cures for alzheimer's or dementia or some even some insight into those awful diseases i think i saw in a paper today alzheimer's affects eight hundred and fifty thousand people in the uk really that would be incredible yeah it's just, it's just that early catching on to things right which don't necessarily seem kind of normal and the whole kind of thing between the brain is so complicated right and there's all sorts of parts to it there's a cognitive there's a neuro and different parts of the brain are in charge of different parts of how you process information see information that sort of thing and the fact that something like that can can almost score you, give you a little bit of a gauge of this is where you are, this is what kind of you need to be. Mm. It gives you some food for thought. But also, I can kind of sit playing playing devil's advocate, you can go the other way and it could scare the life out of someone as well if the results weren't what they Knowledge is power. That is true, yeah, yeah. It's only a reading. It's only showing you what's there. Yeah, that's true, that's true. But I think it will do... Yeah, it, it would help loads with yeah, um, just medicine and care, and especially when you hear about the grey pound and an ageing population and, and stuff Oh, yeah, like let's that. face it, people are living far longer than they ever used to, so exactly, it's, it stands right. to the reason that there is more, there are more people out there with, with kind of degenerative brain conditions. Correct. So yeah, yeah. anything that can help is... It's going to help the economy, it's going to help people's lives, it's going to rip apart families less, cause a lot less distress. So Correct. this is incredible. Yeah. From one very complicated subject to another very complicated subject, do you know what observability is? I don't know. Don't worry, I didn't about a week ago until I chatted to uh, Christine Yen from Honeycomb. Observability, basically, is the tools that help software engineering teams understand why their code is not behaving like it should. Okay. Which, when you've got increasingly complex architectures, um, AI, and a whole load of complex different technology, Mm. it becomes quite difficult to work out what's going on under the hood of an organisation. Correct. So we're going to find out how you can try and fix that. So I'm joined by Christine Yen. Uh, Christine, you are, make sure I get this right, co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb. That's correct. How are you today? I'm excellent. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good. And you've flown in for day three of the conference. I have. Uh, From the States? From the States. Uh, where, actually, directly from, I live in Reno, but I actually came from Portland. Okay. 
some other some other events get me there, and uh, I'm excited to be here today. You've already spoken once at the conference. This afternoon, you're giving a talk on observability. True. Um, so before we get into that, do you want to set some context? Who are Honeycomb? Happy to. Honeycomb is a tool. It's an observability tool that helps software engineering teams understand why their code is not behaving the way that they expect it. And I imagine right now there's a lot of interest because people are taking vitamins, but kind of, hey, AI is very exciting, lots of application or, um, yeah, certainly lots of adoption of technology, but perhaps not a lot of intentionality. It's true. It's true. I think in, in, in this world, um, software engineering teams are always looking for the next best way to build their software. And there's yeah. lots of new trends and technology to pull in, AI being one of them. And as they bring in these new technologies or architectures or ways of building software, they usually inadvertently make yeah. their world more complicated. Um, and that complexity then makes it harder to figure out, oh no, I tried to build a thing. It's not quite doing what I want. Why? And doing that and figuring out that debugging, that's where we come in. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I think you know, I love conferences for is precisely the reminder that you know, technology is one piece of the puzzle. How it impacts the humans is another. How humans adopt new practices, how they make sense of uh, the, the, the trends they're adopting, and how they make sure their whole team does as well. You mentioned that it can get complex quickly, and the question is, is why? Typically speaking, what are the reasons? What are the kind of the decisions that have led to someone having a murky picture? Yeah, um, there, when, Let's say, let's say you and I launch an app tomorrow. It wouldn't be a very good one because I have no technical background. But That's okay. It, it, it'll it, be on you. <laughs> it'd be promising and exciting. Okay. And on day one, you know, it, maybe it'd be pretty small. And there wouldn't be a lot of users because, you know, despite you and I trying our best, yeah. day one of an app, um, you know, it'd be pretty simple. And so we could understand what it's supposed to do and how. But as it inevitably becomes the most popular app in the world, as, you know, collaboration between the two of us would be, um, you know, over the weeks or months, you'd start to see more users, you'd start to see more scale, more traffic, and with that, we'd have to go and make sure that our backend can handle that traffic, that you know, our, we can, the, the shared resources that this app is relying on is able to handle, service all of these users at the same time. Each one of those sort of decision points of how do we make sure that not just five users can use our app at the same time, but 500 or 5,000 or 5 million, um, those contribute to the complexity of how software is architected. And with each of those, as you know, our little diagram of uh, one app becomes one app and five databases, or five databases and, and a bunch of shards, and I'll spare you the rest of the technical jargon, um, it, it necessarily becomes more complicated. Think about an organization of humans. When you're one lemonade stand, you just need one person. Once you become a lemonade company, and you've got a store and a mall, you've got all sorts of moving pieces, and it's just this, this rising complexity isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just the nature of growth and scale. So what do you, what do you suggest to leaders to help them navigate that complexity? If, if it's unavoidable, how do you make your way through it? I think you need, you know, at every generation of this, at every step of this evolution of software, um, the every every software engineering team has a tool that helps them see what is my software doing. As their system becomes more complex, 
the, the really important thing is making sure that you have a tool that is expecting that complexity. Um, and really, you know, in our language, it means that it's flexible enough to work with all these complex parts of a system, and it's fast enough that you can ask follow-up questions. Right? Imagine you're debugging your lemonade chain. Oh, revenue is down, sales are down. Why? Oh, are we charging too much, too much for strawberry lemonade and no one's buying it? Are we charging not enough for something else? There's this an iterativeness to exploring this complex landscape that um, is really key to observability. Um, that's one of the, the fundamental ways that observability is different from the segments that came before. And the honeycomb, in particular, is a manifestation of that sort of value prop for our users. We, we mentioned the talk that's coming up. It's on, on the Growth Summit stage this afternoon. Story of, of observability, uh, category creation and defying the odds. I think that the defying the odds element is, is quite interesting because it's a, it's a volatile market, right? Volatile market. Um, this is, you know, I've heard this current era, this AI maybe notwithstanding, but the current era described as the worst uh, especially growth fundraising environment in recent history. Um, and that plus category definition, category creation in general is not a guaranteed or common occurrence. Um, those two things paired together, I think, uh, you know, really led us to highlighting the, the odds against us, both creating the category of observability and being able to then raise um, our recent $50 million series deal. Raising money is always something that, that founders and co-founders are going to have question marks about, especially you know when you walk around the floor, the amount of alphas out there who are hoping to get that chance meeting. Have you got any advice for them when they're at that early stage that could just help their odds slightly? Really focus on your story. Why, you know, it, it's, it's the, the classic advice, it's classic for a reason. The why now, the why, why you, um, and why this problem, I think, Having those really nailed in and being able to have the credibility to back that up um, helps you stand out in a sea of services or, or companies that seem indistinguishable from the competitors. Yeah. Look, you're on stage. You're the person that people are asking questions of, myself included. But equally, you're a, you're a member of this community. As a leader, when you come to a conference, what questions do you have? I love finding out what was hard. Yeah. I love finding out what was a surprise. Um, I think the all of life, maybe, is about having a set of expectations and then confronting reality and then reevaluating those expectations um, and learning from that so that you can have maybe a closer set of expectations the next time. Um, but especially that question of unexpected really lets you learn from the founder, from the leader, um, what, what their worldview was and what takeaways they had from their encounters And let's end on takeaways then, because towards the beginning, I think you mentioned that you know technology is important, but let's remember who or why we're building this for. What, what is your key takeaway to anyone when you're talking on stage or they're listening to a podcast or whatever else, you're in conversation with them, that they should take with them? Honestly, this will sound... Um, sound counterintuitive coming from a technical person, uh, but it's not about the technology, it's about the people. 
It's always about how does it how does it actually benefit your customers, their teammates, their coworkers, their customers. Uh, how how are you as a company changing people's hearts and minds, not convincing them that your technology is better? Um, it's and it's about how you treat the people that you end up working with um, in this joint endeavor. You know. One of, my, one of my other colleagues likes to make fun of me for that every conference I walk away and for the takeaways, it's all about the people or every conference, everyone walks away with it. it's all about the people, that's why we get together after all. Um, but I think you can never lose sight of that in this startup world or else you're, you're pushing a product no one wants or you know, in a fight no one else cares about. Thank you very much for your time. Good luck with your talk and uh, Hopefully, uh, well, perhaps see you at another conference, given that it is all about people. <laughs>